Okay, so I've been a white guy in Hmong churches for about 15 years now. So like by now I should have, I should have a doctorate in feeling uncomfortable. Like, I, I should have a PhD in feeling really out of place. Because that's basically just been my life for the last 15 years. Um, there are a few things more disconcerting than sitting in a room and everyone's talking and you have no idea what anybody is saying. But that's kind of normal for me now. Um, thankfully, now I, I know a little bit of Hmong. I can pick up like half conversations and words and things. But man, I remember early on when we moved out to the Twin Cities back in 2001. Man, those were some awkward, awkward times. Or a little later when we started attending Hmong American Alliance Church. And um, I th it, it seems like some of the people had never seen a white person before. Because I'd walk in and people would just kind of like stare. But my favorite one, my favorite one were like the old Hmong aunties and grandmas. Because they literally would just come right up to me. Like no shame whatsoever. Come right up to me and just kind of stare and like cock their head back and forth. And so as if that wasn't uncomfortable enough, then they start talking to me. And I knew like virtually zero Hmong at that point. And so here's, the, here's this old granny, like, okay, like tiny, and just start talking to me. And then they stop waiting for me to respond. <laughs> and I, ah, please get me out of here. Ah. <laughs> it was just so uncomfortable. Um, but there are all these things. Like, like I, I, have e I have eaten parts of animals that I did not know you could eat. I've never thought of eating pig's feet. I'm cool with pig body. <laughs> pig feet, okay? Intestine, okay, that's a little weird. The stuff you scrape out of the intestine, that's where I draw the line, okay? Like, I, I have my boundaries here, okay? The stuff, the outside of the intestine, okay. The inside, no way. But it's just all kinds of weird stuff. Um, I can be sitting around with, with a group of people and they're, they're telling stories from their childhood and the anime they watched or, or sitting eating hot dogs and rice and it's awesome and I'm like, I ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> I have no idea what show you're talking about right now. <laughs> but I just nod and go along with it because I've learned to be comfortable being uncomfortable. I've learned to just sort of accept being out of place. But the truth is being out of place is really uncomfortable. And I think we've all had times where we felt out of place. And sometimes we can laugh it off, but sometimes it really starts to get at us. So what was, what was the out-of-place, uncomfortable time for you? What was it for you? Maybe was it high school? You felt like everyone was having a great time and you just were awkward and you, you, you weren't with the popular people. You didn't have the right clothes, the right shoes, the right whatever. Okay? Maybe it was a new job. You got a new job and you're the newbie and everyone else has worked there for a little while and you don't really have anyone to eat lunch with and on your break and it's just uncomfortable. Okay? Or maybe, maybe as if you're a person of color, you walk into a restaurant and you very quickly realize <laughs> you're the only non-white person in the whole restaurant. 
Uh, my wife and I would, would experience that sometime. And for me, for a long time, and even now, I am sometimes blind to that. Um, but we used to live up in Champlin, which is pretty far out there, and, and it's pretty white up there. And we'd go into a restaurant, and, and we'd sit down, and all of a sudden, like, she would notice be like, I'm the only non-white person here. I'd look around and be like, whoa. And I began to appreciate what that feeling of being out of place was like. Or maybe, just maybe, you've even felt out of place at church, here at River Life, maybe in another church, a church you grew up in, a church you stopped going to because you kept feeling out of place. Maybe you're at church and everyone seems happy, everyone seems awesome, and you're just kind of falling apart. You're dying in a pile inside, but you don't want to say anything because everybody seems like they've got it all together. Or maybe you're divorced and you're tired of people looking at you or talking about you, spreading rumors, and you're just tired of that. Or maybe you're married and you don't have kids and you're tired of, of the people asking you, when are you going to have kids? And then start asking you really personal questions. I mean, my wife and I don't have any kids. We tried for a number of years. And I am astounded at the questions people would ask us. I was, I was, so some, like, you'll often get the question of like, so whose fault is it? Okay. Well, let me show you. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, you want to ask a personal question? I'll give you a personal answer. <laughs> No, I never did that to any of the old aunties. That would, they would just fall over dead of a heart attack. Oh, but maybe that's you, and you're just, you just get tired of being asked the question, and you just feel like you don't belong. Feeling like you don't belong is a terrible feeling. It's horrible. It just it kind of wrecks you. Because it fills you with fear, insecurity, nervousness, all of that that just kind of gets you off your game and you just get uncomfortable. So, I, I, so today I want you to remember, think of a time when you have felt out of place and you felt that discomfort. You felt like you didn't belong. And I want you to hold on to that feeling today because that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about today. Because you see, the early church, the early Christian church, there were a lot of people who felt like they didn't fit in. Because you see, when the church began, it was very Jewish. It was very Jewish. Not everybody in it were Jews, but the majority And part of that is because when Jesus came and he started to establish his church, and, and continue this legacy from the Jewish synagogue and temple and changing it over to the church of Jesus. When that transition happened, even Jesus taught and focused on the Jews. He even said that, that I, I want to reach my sheep. There are other sheep, and we'll, we'll reach them in time. But for right now, I want to reach my sheep. So he focused significantly on Jewish ministry. 
So here's a church filled with Jews. But what happens like when, when some Greeks want to join or some Africans want to join? What happens there? That was the tension. That was the tension of the early church. And it's really represented in the first, sort of the first 10, book of, uh, 10 chapters of the book of Acts. Particularly 6 through 10, there's this tension of the racial and ethnic makeup of the church. And that's what we're going we're, we're to step into that tension right now. We're going to step in and look at a story, one of the significant stories in that time period of the early church that pushed up against the Jewishness of the church. So, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and so this, this story involves two people, two people. So first, it involves Philip. Okay? So Philip was kind of like a deacon or an elder in the church. Right? He wasn't one of the first disciples, one of the twelve but he was, he was pretty significant. Uh, he was like a deacon. Think of him like an elder. And one thing that was significant is he was Greek. Okay, he was not Jewish. Okay, so that's the first guy in the story. The second guy in the story is a high-ranking government official from Africa. And they meet on the road. Okay. So today's passage, if you want to follow along, it's going to be on, in Acts 8. You can follow along here, and are we going to have it up on the screen? We're going to get, can we get that Acts 8 passage up on the screen? There you go. So we're going to, if you want to read along on your, on your phone, in your Bible, you can read along. So it's Acts 20, chapter 8, starting with 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Okay, so let's pause there. We got a lot going on here. So let's get ourselves oriented. Let's do some good observation of what's happening here. Okay? So first, and, and I've got a map to help us out. Okay? So I've got a map to help us out. So, so Philip is in Jerusalem. And there was huge persecution that happened. In fact, just before this story, the very first Christian named Stephen was killed. And, and so this great persecution broke out in Jerusalem. So Philip, who's in Jerusalem, which is the very top, tip top up, up there by the word Mediterranean Sea, he's like, okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> so he decides to go to Gaza, which is also up, way up there at the top of the map along the coast. Uh, if you like following international news, um, if you've heard of the Gaza Strip, where a lot of the Israel-Palestine conflict is going on, that's where he was going. Okay? So he was, he was heading down to Gaza. Now, at the same time, he meets a guy. He runs into a guy. What do we know about them? First, he's Ethiopian. He is, he is labeled, he is called Ethiopian in the text. Now, you can see on the map, so Ethiopia is way south. But one of the things is he, he might not have actually been from Ethiopia. Because to, um, to the Jews, anything south of Egypt was Ethiopia. Okay. It's kind of like here, if you talk about going up north, 
Uh, you could be going to all kinds of cities. You could be going to Brainerd, Malax, Duluth, Boundary Waters, whatever, okay? It's all up north. That's kind of what it was like with this, this term Ethiopia. So the truth is, like this guy could have been from Sudan. He could have even been from Uganda, which is directly below South Sudan and Ethiopia. Most likely, he was probably from Sudan. And the reason for that is Ethiopia, that would have been a long way to travel. So most likely, he was probably from Sudan, but he could have been from any one of those countries down in east at the east side of Africa. So that's the first thing we know. And what that means is, one, he's not Jewish, and two, he is dark-skinned. I mean, he is, he is an African, which means racially and ethnically, he is different than 99% of the people around him in Jerusalem. Okay? So he, he's, he's a bit of an outsider. What else do we know? First, he, or second, he works for the queen. He works for the queen, which means he is really important. There's like king, queen, and then this guy. So he, he is probably one of the, the, the top five most powerful people in his country, which means he's also wealthy. He was loaded. He had his own chariot. Okay? And most likely with the chariot, he also had an entourage, which means this is, this is no schlum. Okay? This is a wealthy, high-ranking government official. Um, what else do we know? There's also this word eunuch. The story is often called the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. So what does that mean? Well, it could mean one of a couple things. First is a eunuch, it could be someone who was castrated. Either at birth, so something happened as a birth defect, or not at birth, as a young man or as an adult. Um, so, yes, all the guys, we can kind of cringe right now for a little bit. Okay, you're all right. You can br breathe deeply again. Okay, good. So, the other option is that word eunuch also became known as a more general term for a royal servant. The reason for that is it was very common for royal servants, particularly men, male royal servants of women, that they would be castrated. Because you know, if, if you remove the equipment, there's a lot less likelihood of, of kind of sexual impropriety going on. Uh, and the theory was if, if they didn't have that to worry about, they could focus on their job and they were less of a threat to the queen, for instance. So it was actually very normal for a, for an, a, a high-ranking official, royal servant who was male, to be castrated, particularly if he served a female, say, queen or princess. Um, so it's possible he could have been just kind of intact, if you want to use that term. Um, and it was just a generic term for an attendant to a fem an important female. We don't really know. Okay? And truth is, it's not like I'm going to start digging into history to fig figure out if this guy had his junk or not. So, <laughs> but what's important in this story is this, this man's status Wealthy, powerful. This man's race, he was from Africa. He was not from the Middle East. His ethnicity, he was not Jewish. Okay? But one thing that's also really interesting about this is that he was also very religious. Because okay? it talks about him reading the scroll of Isaiah, which that's another sign that how wealthy he was because people didn't own their own scrolls. 
That'd be like that'd be like me having a gold-plated iPad up here. Like people just don't have that except for like Diddy or something. Okay? So so he had his own scroll. That's crazy. And he was reading it on this chariot that was probably pulled by really good horses. And then he had a whole bunch of attendants probably walking around with him. So that's the story. But there's something interesting about his religiousness. As a eunuch in Jerusalem, he would have been unable to enter the temple because his body was, would be considered impure or imperfect. So here's a guy who was an outsider in every possible way, racially an outsider, ethnically an outsider, geographically an outsider. He was away from his homeland. And even physically, he was an outsider to God's people. And yet, he was reading the scroll of Isaiah. Okay? So let's see what happens as he reads. Let's go on. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stand near it. So he must have been cruising pretty slowly. And so the Holy Spirit told Philip, go over to that chariot. Okay? So he just casually walks along the chariot. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. This was also very common. Everybody read out loud. There's no like reading in your head. This was just everybody reading out loud. So here the man reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come in and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak? Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So that's, that's what he was reading. And meanwhile, Philip hops in. I mean, imagine like hopping into like an extended mega Rolls Royce Hummer combination. I don't know. Imagine like somebody driving here. Hop on in. Explain this Bible passage to me because I don't get it. I would love you to explain it to me. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So he is quoting out of the book of Isaiah, particularly chapter 53, verse 7 and 8. So two verses. Now, chapter 53 is a part of one of the most significant sections in all of Isaiah. It runs for about nine chapters, and it describes this person called the servant. He describes this person called the servant. And here are some of the things that these nine chapters talk about, say about the servant. That this is a person who obeys God in righteousness in contrast to the Israelites who had disobeyed God. He also would suffer. Uh, he also would restore God's people because the Israelites at the time were being held in slavery and captivity. And so this, this servant would restore God's people, and he would also condemn the wicked. So these are the themes that talk about in these nine chapters. And chapter 53 is kind of right in the middle of it. Okay. And so this, this servant, this word that's used, it, it, over time it became understood to be that was Messiah. That was the one who would save the Israelites, so this became the servant Messiah. 
So the eunuch asks Philip a question. Here we go. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. That's how you knew he had an entourage. He gave orders, stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip was baptized. And Philip baptized him, sorry. Um, when they came out, yeah, wrong guy getting baptized. <laughs> and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. What an amazing story. This was amazing. Philip told the Ethiopian about Jesus, starting from Isaiah 53. And all the way through the story, and the Ethiopian believed. He believed that Jesus was this servant Messiah that God promised 700 years ago. That's when the book of Isaiah was written, 700 years prior to Jesus. And the Ethiopian believed. And then this stuff about baptism, we'll get to that in a sec. Okay, so I'm going to jump over that. But what if... What if this story was something much bigger than the story of one man believing in Jesus and getting baptized? Now, that's a miracle. That is amazing. That's, that makes a great story in itself. But what if there was something much bigger going on here? Now, remember, this guy is an outsider. He is an outsider to Judaism and, and the, the Jewish world of Jerusalem, Racially an outsider, ethnically an outsider, geographically, physically, he was an outsider. And he, the, he was excluded from the Jewish temple. Yeah. But he became a part of God's family. That is a remarkable thing. When an outsider, someone who is not a part of the no normal, becomes a part of God's family. Now, remember this, the passage that he wrote was out of Isaiah 53? Now, there's another passage really close to this that is critical to understand this story. Now, what, so, so I'll teach you a little bit about how to understand Old Testament in the New Testament. So most of the Old Testament writers and the people, and as God is telling these stories and these things are happening, when the New Testament uses a verse or a passage, it rarely refers to just that passage. Usually what happens is it refers to a whole section. Okay? It's not just limited to the passage. Let me give you an illustration. Okay, ready? All of you will get this idea. If that's a little confusing, you, you will get it in like one minute. Ready? I'm going to give you a quote, and you just think of whatever you think about. Luke, I am your father. Okay? Most likely you, you thought of Star Wars. You might not have thought of the exact scene where that quote was from. But you probably thought of Star Wars. Maybe the, maybe the last one. Maybe you're watching Rogue One on Netflix. Maybe the new one coming up. But the whole Star Wars universe comes to mind with a single quote. That's how the New Testament used the Old Testament. 
Because the Jews who would have heard this story, they knew their Old Testament. They knew all nine of these chapters. So when, the, when, when Philip talks about Isaiah 53, they all of a sudden know. They, they know Isaiah 50, 49, 54, 55, 56. Because I want to read you a passage out of Isaiah 56. That in light of this story in Acts is astounding. Here it is. Isaiah 56, 3 through 7. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give to them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be a ca called a house of prayer for all nations. That was written 700 years before Philip ran into an Ethiopian eunuch on the road. And this, this passage talks about outsiders being included into the family of God. And this passage gives two examples of outsiders, foreigners and eunuchs. Our guy today, today's guy, is both. He is a foreigner and a eunuch. So this story, this is not just one guy believing in Jesus. This is a 700-year fulfillment of God's promise that outsiders can be a part of the family of God. This is a living, breathing fulfillment of God's promise that his family is not limited to the people who fit, to the people who belong. That is an incredible promise, especially if you've ever felt on the outside. If you've ever felt as an outsider, this story is living proof, living fulfillment that God takes outsiders and makes them insiders in his family, under his name, with his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the, the living fulfillment of the servant Messiah. And in Jesus, the outsiders become family. Now this story concluded with the Ethiopian eunuch walking away being filled with joy. You know why he was filled with joy? Because on that day, in the book of Isaiah, 
he learned that God's redemptive story includes everyone. And God's story included him. And God's story can include you. So he asks the question, what can keep me from being baptized? What can keep me from being baptized? What could possibly keep me? Could my race? No. Could my ethnicity? No. Could my homeland? No. Could my defect? No. None of that kept him from being baptized. And I loved Philip's response. They're literally just riding down the road. They pass a river, a pond, something. Philip gets out right then and says, let's baptize. He asks, what can stop me? And, and, and I, wonder, I, I wonder what the tone of that question was. Is it one of empowerment? He learns about Jesus' love and inclusion. And he says, what could possibly stop me from being baptized? Or maybe he asked it with a little insecurity. What can stop me from being baptized? I'm the outsider here. You're, you're the in crowd. I'm the outsider. But you know, when you look at it, I, be I believe that he with full confidence said, what in my life, what in my personhood, what in my history can keep me from being baptized? Nothing. They stopped the chariot and he got baptized right then. I almost wish we could just have a pool here every Sunday. A little rented jacuzzi over here. That means at any point, any Sunday, someone gets baptized. We'll even buy some bathing suits, whatever. We baptize them right then, okay? Right after service. Because what can stop you from being baptized? Nothing. Your race your ethnicity, your homeland, your fears, your sins, your failures, your past, nothing. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon his name. Believe that he is that servant Messiah. And he died to save you from your sins and give you an eternity with God. After that, nothing can stop you from being baptized. So if you are a follower of Christ and you haven't been baptized, I don't know what it is in your mind, in your heart that is holding you back. But whatever that is, the answer is no. It doesn't have to hold you back. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be baptized. So baptisms at River Life are for every believer in Christ. There is no obstacle, no barrier, no failure, no past mistake, no status that can keep you from being baptized. Because you see, baptism is a sign of belonging to Christ, not being perfect. We, try to, we, we often will think baptism means 
you're more perfect. You've, you've kind of got your stuff under control. Nah. Baptism is just a sign you belong to Christ. This Ethiopian, he made the decision, I want to belong to Christ. I want to be a part of the servant Messiah's family, of the Lord's family. He said yes to Jesus. He got baptized. So you don't have to get your life together. You don't have to fix your sins. You don't have to be a better Christian, whatever that means. You have to believe in Jesus Christ, and you can get baptized. So what's keeping you from getting baptized? And for you today, if your answer is nothing, then it's time for you to be baptized. We're going to do baptisms at camp at the the summer retreat, and we're going to do baptisms the week after. We already have about seven people signed up for the week after, um, and so it's going to be amazing. So what is keeping you from being baptized? And the answer is nothing. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you that you are a God who welcomes outsiders. Lord, you are a God who takes the awkward and the uncomfortable, the misfits and the rejects, and in Christ invites them into your family. God, so for all of us who have felt on the outside, who have felt like we don't fit in, Lord, I pray that your love be deep and real and true to every one of us. That we know that in Christ, we are your adopted sons and daughters. In Christ, we are cherished beyond measure. In Christ, we are forgiven. God, let us know that. Let us know that without a doubt. Lord, and I pray for those people here who who believe in you, and are following you and haven't been baptized. Speak to them. Give them the conviction of the Ethiopian to say, what can keep me from being baptized? Nothing. God, so I thank you. You love us, Lord, and I thank you that you love us not for anything that we do, but for exactly who we are, your creation. Pray in your name. Amen.